0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Greatest Games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, Jonathan Wilson of course is here. Joining us today is Paul Hayward, one of the most recognisable names in British sports journalism, having written for The Guardian, The Independent, The Mail and of course up until recently was the chief sports reporter at The Telegraph. Paul uh, was also Sir Alex Ferguson and Sir Bobby Rodman's ghostwriters for their autobiographies and is currently working on a biography of the England's men's football team, Paul a pleasure to have you in the podcast. Glad to be here. Today, we go back to Guadalajara in the summer of 1970, the World Cup Group 3 match that ended Brazil 1, England nil. Paul, why have you chosen this game?
1: Uh, well, I think that if any game in international f- football qualifies as a turning point, this one does. It was the beginning of the end for England's golden age, really, of 1966 to 70. <clears throat> In which time they won the 66 World Cup, finished third in the European Championship of 1968 and went to Brazil, sorry, Mexico in 1970 with arguably a stronger squad than they had in 1966. And at the same time, although Brazil had won the World Cups of uh, 1958 and 62, this was, this was the coming of age, I think, in Mexico of, um, of, probably by consent, the greatest international football team we have seen. And the beauty of this game, I think, is that, it, is that England provided genuinely stiff opposition for Brazil. And Brazil remembered the game as the hardest they faced in the whole uh, tournament in Mexico. So Brazil were very much on the way up and England were very much on the way down. This was, to me, this game ended that period, the period in which Alf Ramsey was successful as England manager, and it began the slide into the barren decade of the 1970s. And the game itself was, was tightly fought and a fascinating spectacle in itself, but it's the symbolic importance of that game that really stands out for me.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a very iconic game, Jonathan.
2: Oh, and it's a really good game. I mean, mm. it's slow. Which you expect partly because of the the period, but also the heat and and the uh, conditions in in Mexico. But it's an incredible. Uh, it's, tactically, it's an incredibly interesting game, and there's loads of elements of it which which feel modern. So, for instance, England fullbacks are very very attacking, which you sort of think as being a sort of late nineties development. But you, you look at Tommy Wright and and um, and Cooper here, and they yeah they they they're both getting up and down all the time, um, and so yeah, it's. I think Paul's right. I think it it's I think it actually stands on two fault lines. So there's that fault line of of England on the way down, Brazil on the way up, but I think it also stands on a on a tactical fault line. And I think that's where it's it's a little bit more blurred. But uh I, I think this was perceived at the time as being this is the start of a of a bold new era. You know, this is the first World Cup uh, broadcast on satellite TV. You know, we get colour pictures for the first time, which I think adds to the impact although obviously not every colour TV's. But there is this sort of sense of the exotic and the modern about Brazil. And actually, it's an old-fashioned form of football. But you know, they're not playing, they're not pressing. They're not playing the sort of integrated system-based football that, that would come to dominate. And so, in, in a sense, it's the end of the old romance um, and not the beginning of a new age at all. So it's, it's those two intersecting fault lines of England to Brazil, but also of the last flowering of, of this sort of great football of individualism.
0: Yeah, there's a lot going on there, as you say, Jonathan. With with this World Cup, I mean, Paul, it is one of the most iconic World Cups, as Jonathan's uh, spoken about there. But the backdrop of, of Mexico as well, you know, the sort of sunshine beating down, the huge stadiums, you know, it was an amazing occasion.
1: Yeah, it was, and and, and England, for once, prepared really well for it. They went, they left, um, they left Britain uh, a month before the tournament, and they went trawling around South America to try to get acclimatized. But they couldn't really prepare themselves for the fact that um, this game kicked off at noon to suit um, to suit British television, and um, it was played at a peak of ninety-eight degree heat. Some of the some of the England players lost um, six to seven percent of their body weight in that game, and there is the caveat, of course, that it was a group game. So, and both those teams knew that they would almost certainly progress. Uh, England had beaten Romania 1-0 and Brazil had beaten Czechoslovakia 4-1. So it wasn't a kind of live-or-die uh, knockout game. But at the same time, it achieved, this, um, it achieved this incredible quality and intensity. And the teams were very well um, matched. And you're right. Uh, I think even if you weren't alive during the World Cup, if you start looking through the footage, everybody everybody looks well and healthy. And everything is brightly lit. And you feel that you're you're watching the the end of an era, really, the end of that sort of nineteen fifties, sixties period, um, culminate. Um, football went off in all sorts of interesting new direction in directions in the seventies.
0: Hmm. Uh, Paul talks about England's preparation for the tournament. Of course, it wasn't all ideal when they uh, went to <laughs> Colombia, was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean. You, Shall we touch on that briefly, if we must? Uh, Jonathan Bobby Moore being accused of theft. Yeah, I mean, still nobody quite knows what happened. But
2: yeah, mm. England had played in Colombia. Then they they went off and played a game in Peru, is that right? Somewhere else. And they, they end up going back through Bogota to get up to Mexico. And when they're back in Bogota, uh, it's in the Tekendama Hotel, which is still there in Bogota. I, I stayed there accidentally uh, mm. in 2011, not realising it was the same hotel, because it's now a Crown Plaza. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, a an assistant in a jewellery shop in the hotel accused Bobby Moore of stealing a bracelet. Uh he ends up um arrested and, and placed in the house arrest for a while. And her her story falls down pretty quickly because she says he he, he put the bracelet in a pocket in the in the um in his blazer, in his official blazer, and there, there was no pocket where, where she said the pocket was. Uh but then there's other suggestions that maybe Bobby Moore took the fall for the younger squad members who've sort of been been playing a prank. So it's it's still very unclear as to as exactly what did happen. But what, what ends up happening is Bobby Moore's left behind, the rest of the team goes to Mexico. And when Bobby Moore turns up, it's sort of, it's added to his legend that he's sort of unflappably dealt with all this. Well, an interesting
1: thing about the um, him turning up late as well, I think he turned up three days before the game and he'd lost a lot of weight in custody, understandably, with the stress of it all. So he turned up um, very light for the game. Had, I think, one training session. Um, uh, Alf Ramsey thrashed him through this training session, didn't give him any leeway um, at all. And in the game, played quite magnificently. I mean, the, the 66 final, the more times you watch that, the more you realise that, Bobby Moore's composure, passing, anticipation, presence um, made a vital difference in the '66 final. But if you watch him very closely in that game against Brazil in 1970, his timing, his interceptions, his his um, vision and awareness are absolutely absolutely sublime. And, it, and it's hard to believe that a few days earlier he'd been in, in custody and looking at a possible prison term.
0: Hmm. I mean, Paul, how did uh, Alf Ramsey approach this this tournament? You know, England going in with the, Huge expectation. They were the world champions for crying out loud. Was it a similar style that he was wanting to play in '66? You know, a few different faces in there, of course, but still, the number of the the same players were still there.
1: Yeah, as John said, it was actually they were more adventurous um, in many ways in '70 than they were in '66. And um, later in the early '70s, Ramsey began to be heavily criticised for being too negative and and, you know dropping back into this rigid four-four-two formation. But I mean, an example would be John mentioned Terry Cooper. Um, Ramsey picked an attacking left back who really wasn't that great at defending. And if you look at the West Germany game a bit further on in the quarterfinals, Cooper is culpable um, in at least one of the West German goals because um, he didn't defend as well as he attacked. But in the Brazil game, you see him and the other right fullback, Tommy Wright, flying up the right hand side. So I think there was there was a verve and a confidence about the '70 team that the '66 team didn't have because they'd fallen back on on regimentation and physical strength and, and organisation.
0: Yeah, what about the Brazilians, Jonathan? I mean, we know a lot about this side now, but going into the tournament, Brazil, obviously, 66, it hadn't really worked out well for them, but we knew in 58 and 62 they'd, they'd won the tournaments and they still had the big man Pelé up front. What was their... Um, kind of uh sort of preparation and and, and the feeling in the brazil well, it's, it's
2: odd in that you know the, the cliche brazilian football is oh you just grab 11 players off the beach which clearly is nonsense <laughs> so it's both much more organized in the mansion and also much more chaotic so they went on a nasa training course to get them fit to mm-hmm. play in mexico and, and um the military government saw absolutely the propaganda potential. Uh, Medici General Medici just taken over. He was the most authoritarian of Brazil's dictators. He was desperate for the victory, um, but that then led to conflict with the coach Charles Aldania, who had been a member of the communist party in his youth, had been a player, became a journalist, and he was he was known as Fearless Joe because he you know he was just prepared to say anything, whatever he thought he said. He was obviously a little bit um, uh, let, let's call him unpredictable as being a polite way of putting it. In that, yeah, you know, he once he fell out with an opposing coach and chased him with a gun to his hotel. I think I was in sixty seven, mm-hmm. um, and they qualified very well. They'd they'd scored twenty uh, odd goals, twenty three goals, I think, in the six games in in qualifying. Um, yeah, twenty three goals in six games in qualifying. But then in October sixty nine, he went to Europe to to, you know, to to sort of scout out the opposition, see see what was. See what European football was like, and of course Brazil had these memories of '66, where they'd essentially been bullied out of the tournament, so you're kicked out of it by, uh, by Hungary and by by Portugal. Um, and and he came back, sort of in a panic, sort of thinking we're, you know, we're not strong enough, we're not big enough. And you know, the other phrase he used was, uh, the European teams were the best boxers and wrestlers will win it, and so he <laughs> he, he instituted this con- conscious program of picking bigger and stronger players. He. He raised the average height of a team by three inches. Well, he, he picked players who were big enough to raise the average height. He didn't stretch them. But. I was about to say. <laughs> um, <yeah>. Unpredictable <laughs> Um but, but this sort of leads to this sort of consternation in Brazil. It's sort of, Hang on, we, we're abandoning everything that makes our football great. And then in March 1970, they had two back-to-back warm games against Argentina. And for the first of them, he dropped a forward called Dario. And Dario was a favourite player of Medici. Medici was a big Flamengo fan. And he's effectively arranged Dario's transfer from um, Atletico Mineiro to Flamengo. And so when he drops him, obviously somebody asks Saldanha, are you concerned by this? And his response was, you know, I don't pick the general's ministry. He doesn't pick my forward line. Which is fair enough, but probably not when you're living under dictatorship. Maybe be a bit more diplomatic. And then they they lose the first of these two games to Argentina. Gerson and Wilson Piazza get totally overrun in midfield. Uh, he... Uh, Saldana blames Pele for not dropping deep and not doing his defensive work, which, you know, Pele is sort of the archetypal number ten. He's not meant to do defensive work in the Brazilian mind, and so that then sort of creates you know, further conflict, further doubts about him. They do win the second game against Argentina. They bring in Claudio Aldo, who's 19 at the time, defensive midfielder, who goes on to be vital, you know, in, in their success. So he had sort of found a solution, but even after that game, he 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 says Pele's not working hard enough. He says he's short-sighted. Uh, he says that tostao is mentally unbalanced. He says Emerson Liao, the reserve goalkeeper, says his arms are too short to be a goalkeeper. Uh, whichever, is, you've lost it. <laughs> and, and he gets sacked. Um, yeah. Two coaches then turn down the job. Obviously, sort of, Dino Sani was one of them. Uh, I don't remember the other one. But you're both sort of thinking, this is a bit of a poison chalice. Uh, and Mario Zagallo takes it on. But the results leading up to the tournament really aren't that impressive. Um and it it seems that is not really running the team. There's this group of senior players called the, the Cobras, uh Carlos Alberto, Pele and Gerson, uh being the sort of three dominant figures in that. And it's them who, who pick the side. And they end up with this a formation's very hard to pin down. That it's sort of a 4-2-3-1, except much more fluid than that. And it's got Rivolino, who's a winger, sort of playing on, on the on the left but cutting in field, and that sort of balances out Sherginho on the on the right. Um, but Jerson and Clodoaldo at the back in midfield that gives them the basis Clodoaldo's athleticism and Jerson's long-range passing although Jerson actually doesn't play against him but, um, Palace comes in for him
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, Mario Zagallo is an interesting figure Paul he's had uh... Quite the time he was a player in '58, obviously won the World Cup then and He won the World Cup here, and then came back to manage the side in '98, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, where they they reached the final. An amazing figure in, in Brazilian international football.
1: Yes, he is, and I think he's one of those. He was one of those managers that understood that in some countries a light touch works best. You know, a, a dictatorial. I mean, there have been uh, dictatorial managers of Brazil, but I think Zagallo. Um, understood the team and the culture at that time so well um and he understood that his his job really was to not get in the way of a successful brazil team you know and um it had a a kind of intuitive style of management which which um returned as you said later on in his career but he was um yeah that that team was interesting because they that the reason they didn't like playing england was because um England didn't go man-for-man. A couple of the Brazilian players explained this later. Pele explained it probably more later that um, the teams who went man-for-man against Brazil, that didn't worry them at all because they they could beat the man-for-man marking. They could play round it. But England played a a slightly looser marking system, although Alan Mullery tried to stick to Pele all the way through this game in 1970. Um, He used the phrase, he said, I was in Pele's trousers. Um, he didn't get quite quite that close, but he was he was certainly close. To him. <laughs> um, so Mullery certainly tried to manmark Pele, but the rest of the team played a slightly looser system, which, which Brazil paradoxically found found harder, and they found England harder to play against than any of the other sides they played in that um, in that tournament. Okay, all right,
0: chaps. Well, let's have a quick break, and then uh, we'll talk about the match itself. Welcome back to the greatest games on the Blizzard, everybody. So then, uh, gentlemen, the 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 teams uh, line up in 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 Guadalajara, um, and as as you said, Jonathan, it's a sort of slow game and so on. But it's it's a very exciting game, even even watching it back now with all the kind of modern football looking as it does and, and so on. This this game's still a spectacle. It's still it's still quite. Dare I say end to end? But there's a lot going on, and and you know if you if you watch the highlights again, you think to yourself, surely this doesn't just end the, with the one goal.
2: Yeah, uh, and I think actually England for maybe the first twenty minutes and the last twenty minutes are significantly the better side. Um, mm. you know it's, it's, it's a very even game, and and particularly the fullbacks getting forward and getting crosses in, and you see really early on Tommy Wright puts in the cross and Felix sort of comes to it, gets nowhere near it, and the, the cross is mishit and it, it sort of just drifts wide of the far post. But I think that immediately set in people's minds the idea of you know, Felix really doesn't like balls in the box. Mm-hmm. And then that's the way England can, can really uh, get at Brazil. And of course, you've got Jeff Hurston there, who's a you know, very, very good head of the ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Felix had a, a,
0: a busy day that day. It's fair to to say, Paul. He also took one on the head from from Francis Lee up front, which which caused a, a bit of uh, gave the game a little bit of extra spice. I think it's fair to say
1: it did. And um, Francis Lee had had a shot, and his shot straight at Felix, and and he was so annoyed with himself, he just proceeded to kick Felix in kind of revenge.
0: Um, that doesn't sound like Francis Lee at all. <laughs> but he, he should have scored, though. it's a really good chance. He should, should have scored. He should have scored,
1: but he paid for it, um, I think just before half time, I believe it was Carlos Alberto went over and took revenge on Francis Lee and then, and then apologised to him for him for taking revenge. So it was a game that was played in this kind of remarkable spirit. It was, it was very physical. It was very intense. But both teams were very respectful of one another. So when they kicked each other, there was this, there was this weird civility about it, but um, Zagallo called it later a game for adults, and that's quite a good description. I think what he meant by that was it was it was a full-blooded game, and everybody on that pitch had to um, uh, turn up physically. And the thing I should have mentioned about the England team as well is they they were absolutely hated in Mexico and in South America as a result of the hangover of, of '66. So the South American countries, in particular, obviously thought they'd been unfairly. Uh, favored by referee appointments, by playing all their games at Wembley, and most notoriously by the, the Jeff Hurst shot that probably didn't cross the line in the final. So by the time they got to Mexico, England were hated. Um, Alf Ramsey made no attempt whatsoever to kind of win over the local, um, <laughs> populace. And so it, so, so on this pitch, um, in Guadalajara when they're playing, um, Brazil, they're, they're subjected to this kind of intense hostility from the crowd, this, this hatred. You couldn't get a bigger contrast. Um, from '66 uh, in and Wembley and the big hug of, of Wembley, um, so that's I think I think that's another thing into their credit really that they were able to um, they were able to deal with that or ignore it and and play Brazil on their own terms and play Brazil almost at their own level.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes as Englishmen we we either don't realize it or we forget, Jonathan, just how poorly received the '66 World Cup was received around certain parts of the world. I mean, we we can we can you know, you choose my words carefully, you know, South Korea in 2002, sometimes, you know, we might have the odd suggestion here and there, but this is, it's quite a strong feeling in in parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, I I guess it's
2: sort of the the, the two, the two incidents which come together. So the fact that um, an Englishman, Jim Ramsey, refereed uh, West Germany against Uruguay and a West German, Rudy Kreitlein, refereed England against Argentina, and Argentina have one man sent off. Uruguay have two sent off. And this is seen as being a European stitch-up. I mean, Argentina's delegates arrived late at the meeting and the meeting was, was sort of uh, kicking out as they turned up. So they never had an input into the meeting. You So sort of, they would turn up on time and like, this might not have happened. <laughs> um, but then, of course, what, what what compounds it all is all the ill feeling after that quarter final, And then Ramsey gives them the soundbite, which could be used for the rest of time against England by calling Argentina animals. Uh, which he doesn't actually do directly, but he says, yeah, we'll show our best form when we play a team that doesn't act like animals. And that animals comment is you, know, you just hear again and again and again with this sort of English disrespect for, for South America and, and I guess well, Latin America, I guess. Which is why yeah. Argentina and Mexico all, all have this animus against England. Well this was also
0: reflected, Paul, in um and how how voting patterns were for, for FIFA presidencies, you know, in, in, in the 70s, you know. So Stanley Rouse was in charge uh, of FIFA at the time, and uh, federations and associations around the world had, had just about got fed up of the, the European dominance and uh, almost a bit of a colonial spirit, I suppose, you, they might say.
1: Oh, completely. Rouse was, um, let's say, sympathetic to apartheid um, south america south africa and have a lunch uh was was in the background working out that that rouse was representative of the, of the time that had gone in football and that um he was preparing his his coup d'etat if you like to take over from rouse and to and to um draw on the the votes of um of world football much as as set latter did in a in a in a later period but um yeah england, england were profoundly unpopular in mexico and when jack charlton got back he he one of the first things he said was, you know, I just can't believe how much they hated us. And um and England played this game against Brazil, having not had much sleep because there was a constant din outside their hotel. People stayed up all night outside their hotel chanting for Brazil. So so all in all and then they stepped onto a pitch in ninety eight degree heat, as I said. So all in all it it wasn't a great um it wasn't a great preparation.
0: Yeah, but as but as you mentioned earlier, um it was Quite a decent performance, nonetheless, from England, especially from Bobby Moore, Jonathan. You know, the, the the shift they put in probably thought they should have got at least a point, maybe even both of them. I nearly said all three, but it would have been both of them in those days, of course. Um, but but an entertaining game. And uh, I think it's in the second half, Brazil came out a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the other incident in the first half, of course, was the bank save. Uh, of course,
0: the, yeah. The, the, you
2: know, remains the most famous save of all time, certainly in England, the most famous save of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, he's going across goal, Palace had it down, because it bounces yeah, up, yeah. he has to sort of push it up over the bar. It's not a normal save. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that as a sort of defining image of the game mm-hmm. you know, relatively early on. Uh, the, the, I mean, the other thing I think is worth saying, um, uh, you know, given the, given the uh, hostility of the crowd, given the physicality of the game, Uh, the fact it continues to be played in a good spirit I think you've got to give a huge amount of credit to the referee who is the Israeli Abraham Klein who every time I read anything about him and Rob Smyr did a really good interview with him for the Guardian I don't know probably 10 years ago now uh, but he seems to have been the best referee in the world in the 70s and everybody respected him and he probably should have done the final in in 78 but because he'd done Argentina-Italy which Argentina lost in the group stage the Argentinians managed to veto him and get a more sympathetic figure to them, uh, i.e., something they could like bully. But Klein, I think, has a, has a has a great game. Just sort of, you know, keep keeps the keeps it bubbling at just the right level. He's not over fussy, but he makes sure nothing gets out of hand.
1: Yeah, the the and the, the Gordon Banks save is certainly um, still regarded as the greatest save, certainly in in international football. And I think the measure of how good it was was that Banks couldn't really explain it afterwards. He he wasn't entirely sure what had happened. It started on his on his near post when, um, Giazzino beat Terry Cooper and crossed the ball to Pele, who was closer to the far post. So that was Banks's first problem. He had to get across to the back post where the, where the header had had a sort of bouncing bomb effect and had risen from the ground very sharply. Um, flung himself across and, and intuitively and instinctively got something on it and managed to flick it over the crossbar, but couldn't really explain how he'd done it. But Banks had been in really good form. From the minute they left um, england he he said that he felt he felt sort of unbeatable and on the training ground he was saying he was challenging the england players the best strikers of the balls try and beat him in training and none of them could so he went into the tournament thinking i am absolutely in my prime i'm ready for this I, nobody's going to beat me and the he was beaten actually you know uh by um, Jozinia, which we'll come on to for the goal, but nevertheless, his his goalkeeping goalkeeping was at its its height, and he came off the pitch more devastated, I think, than any other England player. Not because, not just because he'd made this astonishing save and still lost the game, but because um, he felt that England were more than a match for Brazil. And he came off the pitch saying, "I think we'll, you know, I expect to meet them in the final." Um, we know what happened in the quarterfinal against West Germany. Peter Benetti took over. Uh, uh, Banks had an attack of uh, gastric flu or food poisoning or whatever it was. And that certainly had a huge effect on that court of against West Germany. But but it's, it is amazing to see Gordon Banks in Mexico in 1970 in this absolutely indomitable position as a goalkeeper. And everybody I've spoken to for my book research um, says the same thing about him, which was that he was a sort of goalkeeper of... Um, you know, of, of mesmerizing kind of agility, and and um, and uh, he was an acrobat. Really, he didn't even look like an acrobat, did he? He didn't look particularly impressive physically. He didn't look like an athlete, really. He looked a bit maybe sort of disproportionate or something. But um, and like he didn't train that hard. But my God, he was he was elastic and intuitive and and very hard to be.
0: Yeah, it's it's a great shame that we don't have the camera angles and all that that you do nowadays in you know watching football because you know we've seen that the, the camera angle that, that we have, but it would have been amazing to see that from a camera in the goal or or something like that. And and as you say, his his reaction when he when he he can't explain it, his immediate reaction, he looks almost sort of dumbfounded. He sort of looks round. As if so, say, I don't, you know, that seems to have been, you know, even when thinking about it, that seems to sum it up. That, that, well, that I, and Pele's
2: reaction is the same. Pele can't believe it <laughs> hasn't got in.
0: But, yeah, but I, I guess in Pele's point of view, it's,
2: it's a great cross. He's met it perfectly. He's headed it down. And, oh, we've got a corner over
0: it. Well, he's reeling away in a celebration, yeah. you would think. You know, you as a striker like Pele scored all the goals that he did, you kind of, you would know when he, when, you, when you, you hit that and you think, oh, that's in the corner. I know when it's going to be a goal, and and as you say, Jonathan, it's a bit like oh, I was expecting a bit more than <laughs> than than than, than, a, than a corner, but but of course it was. Um, but yes, and and going back to to you know when I when I jumped the gun early, you know Brazil in the second half, they they did come out and we began to to see a little bit more of uh, the sort of dribbling skills of Jairzinho and Tostao and so on. Yeah, that first fifteen
2: twenty minutes of the second half, Brazil are
0: definitely on top. There's the mm-hmm. really good
2: Rivelino chance when he, you know, he cuts in from from the right. And his shots, I mean, Banks, I guess, does well to beat it away, but the shot's relatively close to him. But yeah, Brazil are definitely on top. And then just before the hour, they, they take the lead. It's a, it's a really good goal. I mean, it's a lovely goal. <laughs> it is. It tossed out bit of skill to create space and a perfect mm. cross. Pelé's touch to, to sort of, even though it takes him away from goal, it creates space and opens up the angle of his body and then just slips out to the right. It's a pass not dissimilar to his pass to Carlos Alberto in the, in the final. In that, he just opens his body, plays it out to to somebody overlapping on the right. This time, it's it's not Casaburro, it's Jozinho, and Jozinho absolutely lashes it just under the bar. And even mm-hmm. that, you know, Banks is, is not far away from it. It's got it's got to be a good finish, <laughs> or it's well, absolutely.
0: he, he needed to do it. that to score. Yeah, so it's a mm-hmm. it's a magnificent goal. Hmm. Yeah, sorry, Paul.
1: No, I was going to say, and I think what what happened after that, which 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 um, makes you. Understand the sort of confidence and conviction that England had in that, in that year, in that tournament is that England really go chasing this game. They really go pressing for an equalizer. You know, they don't, they don't, there's no sense of them thinking, well, we get to the end of this at 1-0, we've done well and we'll probably qualify from the group anyway. Um, they press and they press and they press, but they're not, the problem is they don't press very well in the sense that, um, uh, you know, there's a notorious Jeff Astle miss when he dribbles a shot wide. That was a, that was a bad one. Alan Ball. Hits the uh, crossbar. You could argue, you could diagnose traditional English panickiness or panic in that in the last ten or fifteen minutes. I'm sure the players who were there would, would object to that. But um, they were they were they were spirited. They were positive. They were determined to try and um, uh, level the game, but they weren't particularly precise. And uh, Brazil probably felt well. We soaked up a lot of a bit of pressure there in the last five or ten minutes, but they didn't really. England um, wasted the chance to, um, you know, to take something from the game.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that that's, that's a, a really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting question. They, they cle- by bringing Jeff on for Lee, it gives them two focal points. So, and they clearly go longer. There's clearly a policy shift. We're going to go long, and it does create those two chances, but it does also feel a bit sort of hit and hope. And I can't quite work out whether, because Felix was so, um, so panicked by by long balls, whether it was worth doing it, or whether it was just a bit thoughtless, and whether they could have got got more out of it. And I think certainly, in the fifty years since, we've seen England regularly do that late in games. You think of Croatia in two thousand and seven with ludicrous kind of let's whack it long on, on the Robert Kovac's head for no reason. Here I, I kind of think it's slightly more justifiable, but it, it's of a keeping with what what we then saw as an English failing.
1: Yeah, and we saw it actually in '73 in the in the Poland game at Wembley. It was a very different very different team in the one one with Poland, but um, you see that same syndrome. Um, they weren't particularly playing long, I don't think, to try and score against Poland when they needed to, needed to win that game. But they were certainly it was certainly panicky, and they were certainly the, the the harder they tried, the less composed they became. So I suppose if you're looking for kind of thematic connections between uh, England's shortcomings, you might look at that as one of them, that that lack of composure. Uh, I mean, even and
2: Iceland in 2016, you see the same thing, right?
1: Uh, I was going to mention that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Maybe there's a pattern there. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be the uh, the default setting, which uh, perhaps we've still not shaken ourselves out of. But let's let's see. Um Going back to the, 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 the game and, and Bobby Moore in, in particular, as you said, Paul, an, an amazing performance and one that, uh, that that won him a lot of accolades, most notably from Pelé, of course.
1: Yeah, and um, my point earlier about how much weight he'd lost and, and, and the ordeal he'd been through was, is apparent in that picture of him swapping shirts with yeah. um, Pelé. Because when, when Bobby Moore takes his shirt off, he's, you know, he's, he's seriously skinny. He looks like a jockey. And you can see there... Um, what the game and what the what the build-ups of the game really um, took from him, but at the same time in the game, uh, we all know that Bobby Moore, the one thing he didn't have was was pace, particularly. And he, and in that game, he was playing a you know a really quick, uh quick fire lightning Brazil side. Although the game wasn't particularly fast, as we said earlier, but but it's it's the it's the way you see Bobby Moore working to his own clock. Really, he's working to his own time frame every time he intervenes, every time he steps across. You know, every time he pokes a leg out and just pinches the ball off an opponent's foot. There's no there's no violence in any of his tackling, there's no there's no force really, it's just it's just extraction, extraction of the ball all the time through through timing and, and awareness. And it's um it's quite mesmerizing actually.
0: A defender with clean shorts, you might say, and clean, uh, and clean staffing, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Jonathan, one of the players that uh, was a standout player for Brazil in that tournament is the man you mentioned. He got the goal, Jairzinho. Uh You know, a, a, an amazing player, and and he, that that goal he scored, and as you mentioned, the, 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 it was the, the pass from Pele, similar to uh, the, the great goal in in the final. You know, the two goals that. that that leap out from this Brazil side from this tournament, it shows you that they weren't just a group of individuals, yes of course they had phenomenal players like Jairzinho and, and Pele and so on, but they could also play as a team as well
2: Yeah, I mean when I say that they're sort of the last of the individualist generation uh, or individualist era, I guess what I mean is they don't they don't press, and I mean you're mm. pressing has sort of become part of, of Soviet football and Dutch football and English football in, in the mid to late 60s and they they don't do this. So, so when when Saldana is talking about his fear of the physicality of European football, that's part of what he's talking about. It's not necessarily that European players are bigger; it's that they're they're closer because of pressing. Um, but yeah, they 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 clearly have a coherent plan of how to attack. And in a sense, Jorginho J- J- being a a, a right sided forward who is their their, their main goal scoring threat is a very modern idea that you you know you. In the same way, Mohamed Salah does it for Liverpool. That if you, you know, if you have your, your, your striker coming in from wide, it changes the angles. It makes it much harder to pick him up. Mm-hmm. You know, should the left back be picking him up or should the left side of centre back be picking him up? Can he hit that gap between them? And and so yeah, he I mean, he scores in scores in every game in that, that tournament, doesn't He Win, wins mm-hmm. the golden boot, and That's and quite, yeah. neither Tostao nor Pelé are classic centre forwards. They are both what Brazilians call um, a ponta de lancer. Yeah, the 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 point of the lance, the number ten, the 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 head of the midfield, rather than rather than the the, the sort of the the focal point up front. So the fact that you've got the two of them, both of them capable of dropping deep. Often they drop deep at the same time, and that creates a space for Jesinio to to break into. And that's then balanced by Rivolino playing in a more withdrawn role on the left. So they yeah they don't get overrun in the field, which is what happened in that first game against Argentina. So Alou Zagallo quite rightly takes the plaudits. Saldana's idea of bringing Claudio Aldo in and recognising that that fault that they were getting overrun in the field when it was just and mm. Wilson Piazza, he, yeah, he was right. He just didn't have the personality to to, to put it into action.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think Paul, there are similarities with with England and Brazil from this moment at this tournament, or from the tournament. Shall I say, Brazil going on to win it. That you mentioned it was the end of this kind of little golden period for England, having won the the, the cup in '66, and and then brought a very, very talented side to 17. Of course, Brazil, we all know about that side. You know, 74 England aren't there. Brazil are, and they do go deep in the tournament, but it's not quite the same. You know, these two sides, when you watched, or, or you know, if, if one had watched that match in 1970, you wouldn't have predicted what would then happen. You know, I mean, obviously Brazil would regularly qualify, but they wouldn't win it again until 94. Um, Brazilian football fans are very disillusioned with this, with with teams other than 82, you would probably say. And England, of course, wouldn't qualify again themselves until nineteen
1: eighty two. No, it's remarkable. And there was there was another moment of symbolism in the next game when England beat Czechoslovakia in their final group game and everybody called it a kind of routine win, you know, and that's what you do, you beat Czechoslovakia in a tournament. Well, six years later, Czechoslovakia are European champions and England go um, well the West Germany game, they the final. is England's last game in the finals of the World Cup until nineteen eighty two. They absolutely take a, a dive in the in the 70s all the way through those tournaments and um but you would this is what I, this is why i picked this game out because you'd never have guessed that that was going to happen when you were watching this game against brazil you might have done in the west germany game where they threw it threw away a two-goal lead and frankly some of the defending um was really abject in that quarterfinal that if you if you if, if, if you were breaking those West Germany goals down now with Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher, you'd, you know, you'd be watching it all night, picking out the mistakes. So, so something went badly wrong for England in that West Germany game. It wasn't the team, Peter Panetti um, notwithstanding, it wasn't the team, it wasn't the performance of the Brazil game. And you start to feel that disintegration, the disintegration of Alf Ramsey's regime, but the disintegration of England as a, as a presence in international tournaments. But nobody would have guessed that it would happen happened so quickly and so dramatically right the way through the 1970s.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that process you talk about, you can trace it over five games against West Germany. So 66 final, England, okay, they need extra time, but they're the better side. The Hearst goal notwithstanding. They deserve to win that game. They are the, the better team. And they, they never lost to West Germany at this point. 68, they played them in a friendly four days before the semi-final of the Euros against Yugoslavia don't take it that seriously, they get beaten, and they sort of ignore the lessons of that the first of it to West Germany, and it's still sort of it's only West Germany, it doesn't really matter. Then 2-0 up in the quarter final here, and okay, you've got the issue with banks not being there, Benetti's mistake for the first goal. But you're right, a complete sort of systemic collapse from a manager from a team whose strength was its system. And then seventy two they played in the quarter final of the Euros two legged, so firstly at Wembley when which is a really strange game, I think it's misremembered. I mean I'd be interested to see what you say in your book about this, but they get played off the park for half an hour and it's watching it's watching you know, football from the nineteen nineties against football from the nineteen sixties in that first half hour. But then they actually get back into it. They get it back to one one, give away a daft penalty, and then chase the game and end up getting beat three one. So it's it's been sort of this half an hour of humiliation and then sort of fifty minutes are quite good. And then they sort of lose it in the last ten minutes but then they go to, to, I think it's played in Berlin, the second leg, and they're just abject. They don't try and get back in the game, they just try and kick West Gen. It's It's sort of complete dereliction of any sort of sense of of fair play or doing what, what English football should be about, what English football should be good at. They, they're there to avoid humiliation and to inflict damage if they can. And in those five games, I, I think you see that arc perfectly. And yeah, it takes them a long, long time to recover from that second game in
1: Berlin. It's a very good point because the, the early anxiety, I think, in the England culture was was about South America and, and, and radically different football cultures. and Would England be able to cope with the rise of, say, the South American powers? And yet, in this Brazil game in 1970, you would have felt, oh, well, yeah, they're not doing too badly. You know, they can play against these sides and hold their own and they do have a valid style of play and the, and the right level of player to be able to compete. But then, in the early seventies, it, it it wasn't South America that gave, that gave England the problem. It was the rise of the great the European superpowers. It was it was German football and Dutch football, and England couldn't cope with the um with the mainstream, you know, continental powers. And that that will have probably come to a shock. That comes to a shock for them. And I agree about the Germany games, John. I think um you could. I'm obsessing about seventy and Mexico, but actually you could go back to the the start the point where Germany starts to become better than England. And more potent than england and and that predates the brazil game in 1970 i think the 70 game just has this extra it has this uh the symbolic importance and i think it you can see it so clearly there um, even though it may have started a couple of years before and under ramsey after this after mexico everybody i've spoken to about it um says that he wasn't handling the transition from um he was no longer handling the transition from 66 very well. He'd become he'd become too loyal to the to the old guard. Uh, he wasn't particularly comfortable with the new style of kind of, for want of a better term, a sort of more maverick style of 70s player, slightly more unruly, the type of player who didn't want to buy into the the tight discipline and the you know the the ascetic nature of the of the England camp uh that Ramsay liked. And um from there uh, I think his control of England and his ability to move them on and keep pace with Germany and Holland was starting to break down. And and Revy inherited that and, of course, made it even worse. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, think,
2: I think Ramsey's loyalty sort of came to haunt him. That uh, is, it, is it Mick Shannon's line? There's a line of, of sort of one of those type of forwards. He says it was really hard to get in the England team a lot harder to get out. once you in, he just wouldn't drop
1: you. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was difficult for them to talk about as well, of course, because nobody wanted to be seen to be disparaging uh, one of the boys of 66. And it, it wasn't really allowed to say Jeff Hurst shouldn't be in the team anymore. Martin Peters shouldn't be in the team anymore. But I think a lot of them felt that. And I think a lot of them felt um, held back in the final phase of uh, Ramsey's career. And then when, when Don Revy came in, obviously, Everybody got to go. It was mass auditions. You know, it was it was uh, uh-huh. changed teams week in, week out. And I think they all felt at that point that um, nobody knew what was going on and that there wasn't a settled side. And they, they veered to the opposite
0: extreme. Yeah, I mean, Paul, we, whenever a golden period or to use more, you know, recent language, a golden generation is spoken about, it, it often takes a while to get over that period uh, certainly we would say the same for, for England nowadays uh, how long do you think it took England if indeed they ever did get over that golden period in the late 60s
1: I don't think they got over it psychologically because the um the sense of entitlement and the the expectation and and the, the sort of um, the delusions really uh, are very strong throughout the 70s 80s and 90s really um I thought the the nineteen eighty two World Cup team was 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 a pretty good one, and they they, they were they were pretty credible in places in, in Spain, and were slightly unlucky and Ron Greenwood obviously made his mistake with Kevin Keegan and Trevor Brooking and all the rest of it. But it was it was a credible side that turned up in um, in Spain in eighty two. I feel, but the mentality around um, England was still still seriously uh, um, distorted and 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 strange and contorted because i don't think England really ever ever adjusted to a reduced position in the world, a reduced position in the game and it, and it and it really it really tormented them uh, and it tormented the players really to have to carry this through the seventies and eighties and um, I think there was a sense of unreality about it all, which didn't help the process of deciding right, um, the golden age is gone. what do we do now to try and compete with the with the superpowers in the game, that calculation was never really made. They just lurched from from event to event, crisis to crisis, and sort of made it up as they went along.
2: Yeah, and I think you see that. That I mean, entitlement. I think is the word. And you think you really see that? Even the World Cup song from '82, "This time we'll get it right," as if there's been this sort of <laughs> this long history of the
0: You won it 16 years ago, lads. You haven't even yeah,
2: been yeah. in the last two. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, perhaps they should have taken a book, uh, a leaf out of Scotland's book when it comes to songs. What was it? Don't Come Home Too Soon? Was there 98 or 96 sort of song, something like that? Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, incredible. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure I've been, talking to you. I've enjoyed you, it. Thanks uh, uh, About this, yeah. Um, for more stories like that, ladies and gentlemen, go to uh, theblizzard.co.uk. Um, but yes, thank you very much, Paul. Pleasure to have you on the pod. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Jonathan, pleasure as always. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Uh, see you next week.